Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. are on radiotherapy with Miss Perry Nam and the lovely training wheels in the studio today. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> we have a really exciting show for you guys today. We have some we're continuing on our sporting theme from last week but coming on a very different topic. We've got two fabulous guests today who I have to say after listening to them chat for the last 5 minutes, I think it might be a very beautiful auditory show today because we have great accents in the studio today. <laughs> We've got Gavin Freeman who's a psychologist who works in the sporting population and Dr. John Brooks who's a sport physician and we're going to be talking all things concussion because coming into winter sports we all have you know head knocks aplenty coming into the world so we're going to be talking about that from both a physical and a mental recovery standpoint but first I let think we let's hit some news let's do it this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. How are you, Perineum? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You've got a special guest in the green room. I do. My little four-month-old baby Zelda is here with me today. And oh, I love when we have extra guests. <laughs> and a big shout-out to my uh, sister and her wife because they are babysitting for me. Bless them. Oh, so nice. So <laughs> nice. I haven't met her yet. I'll have to meet her after the show. Yes. Um, I was looking in the news and... As tempting as it was to do another COVID topic, I've decided not to cover COVID today. So there was something interesting that popped up in the last week or two. The Mm. WHO have made a sort of big announcement that they're not recommending artificial sweeteners Mm. for weight loss. Yeah. That's based on a large systematic review that they've conducted that found that actually sugar using artificial sweeteners so non-sugar sweeteners in mm. in drinks and other sort of diet, you know, other food things actually doesn't have a significant impact on weight. Mm. Um, it looks like on average people who use only the non-sugar sweeteners are about 0.7 of a kilo lighter than people who just eat sugar. Interesting. Um, and it actually makes no difference in other measures such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease and all the other bad things that poor diet. Mm. Yeah. So I was having an in, like an interesting conversation with someone about this because they were saying that just substituting doesn't actually change the behaviours of eating, which That's is interesting, which often is that you're over consuming really sweet things and just over consuming your calories in general. And so you're not changing your behaviours in terms of eating for these kind of metabolic conditions, which is really interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? I think there is some evidence that the artificial sweeteners actually have a similar hormone effect in the body yeah. to sort of sugar and stuff anyway yeah. so it doesn't make a lot of difference yeah. the um the conclusion was though it said so should we uh, do should we just eat sugar instead like are we better off just having sugar and it said no <laughs> just, have just like neither. don't have 
I always just drink I, water. I will forever remember. I used to work in my heyday in a cafe, and I had this one woman who would come in every single day and order a long black. And she always told me no milk because it makes you fat, which was crap. And but she had seven equals in it. Seven. Seven. We had to preload oh the cup with all of her equals. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I heard someone once order a. Skinny hot chocolate with two sugars. And I thought, mm, may as well just have the full cream milk, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh. that's my little bit of news. What have you got for us, Perineum? Well, kind of going along on the um, gut world, because this is my area of amazing sort of, you know, my brain goes down into this world. Uh, there's a paper that came out in Nature two days ago that – Hot off the press. Hot off the press. And I am so excited about this because I've been rabbiting on about it for years. But it proved that chronic stress can cause inflammation in the gut. And they now understand the mechanism of how that actually happens. So for years we've been saying there's been this mind-gut connection that we knew that the the neurons of the brain talk to the nerves in the gut and that that could relate to um, conditions like IBS, which is why people who go through periods of stress with these chronic conditions can get severe flare-ups and their symptoms can get worse through times of stress. But they've now proven with this study how that actually happens. And it's got to do with the enteric nervous system stimulating some of the particular cells of the small and large intestine and how they actually signal digestion and the and the flow of food to and the process of that timing so not only are they affecting the capacity for the body to absorb nutrients and for the cells of the lining of the gut to function correctly Mm. but also for the timing and digestion so it slows down or increases the motility of your gut so some people get Mm. most people don't think about they think ibs is one or the other but it's actually there's lots of different variations and so you can have ibs that's loose you can have ibs that's constipation or you can get a bit of both and that is why that sort of enteric plexus is so important in terms of how that's mediated with the stress response. wow that's so interesting did they have any insight on how we might be able to treat it differently what the implications are their argument was they looked at it and it has to do i won't get into the nitty-gritty of the science but it has to do with the uptake of acetylcholine in the microglial cells which are a particular type of cell in the gut microbiome so they're thinking that it has to do with a particular um, cell signaling pathway, which is the TGF beta cells. You just re- just for listeners at home, mm-hmm. Perineum is just reeling this off. She's not looking at any notes. This is incredible stuff. <laughs> I have to say, I I loving this because um, my honors thesis I actually worked in TGF beta, so I was like, oh, yes, your friend, so TGF beta. <laughs> I was like, in testicles, but a bit different. So, um, but it was so interesting to me that this crossed talk is happening. So there are drugs on the market that actually um, mitigate that cell cell signaling pathway. So it's really interesting that they might be able to find cell signaling targets that actually affect it in the gut. But I think it's a a while away. They've now just proven that it actually exists. Mechanism. Oh, wow. that, you know, all this like hoo-ha of like, you know, your gut reacts to your stress, which lots of people have been saying for years and we knew clinically. Mm. We've now got some actual proof. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's so hopeful for people who are affected by those sorts of conditions too, because it can be really debilitating. They sound yeah. like wishy-washy, but they're actually, you know, they're, it's a daily uh, oh, massive. battle for people. And the quality of life difference mm. is huge. Yep. The other thing I really wanted to mention um, 
is that this week just gone on the 24th of May was World Schizophrenia Day. Happy World Schizophrenia Day. Yeah, one of those things, you know. <laughs> and I think it's really, you know, important that we mention it and talk about the fact that this condition affects 20 million people worldwide. My goodness. And we don't have great treatment options for it, unfortunately. But like schizophrenia impacts a person's thoughts, perceptions, emotions, behaviours, um, and the key symptoms are psychosis, which can involve periods of false belief and hallucinations. Um, but people with schizophrenia can can really, you know, live full and normal lives with good treatment. There are some options in terms of medication and seeing psychiatrists and psychologists to manage the condition ongoing, but it's something that we don't have great resources for in terms of treatment options and we need more research in it. And I think it's really important that on, you know, World Schizophrenia Day, people really try and think about how we can impact those people because it's such a prevalent condition. And a hugely stigmatised and disadvantaged patient hugely, population. Hugely. Yeah, so important to recognise. Yeah. And a shout-out, if anyone wants to know more about um, schizophrenia, they, there's a really great website called sane.org, which is a really good resource uh, in Australia for people to go and look at and, and get some information about those kinds of mental health conditions. Oh, thanks, Perineum. Well, that's the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have a really interesting show for you today and we're going to have, I think, in my opinion, two fabulous guests on. The first is Gavin Freeman, um, who is a psychologist, and he works particularly in the sporting population um, and, and with general clients, but has a particular interest in the sports psychology. He's worked with people from Olympians to corporate world in working on understanding their mental toughness and learn from elite athletes and how these skills can easily transfer into the corporate world and for the general population. He's also written three books, just a mild underachievement, As you, do. you know. Um, so his first book was called The Business Olympian. Clever. Love it. <laughs> Our second book was called, which I love, it made me giggle, was called Just Stop Motivating Me. Is a new, and it's a new way of looking at why we act the way we do and why we can create smarter and more productive working and social environments, which I think is really hilarious because I used to get so frustrated with people being like, why aren't you so motivated? <laughs> <laughs> Gavin was the team psychologist for the Winter Olympic team in Torino in 2006 and the 2000 Sydney Paralympic Games. He has... He was also the team psychologist for the Olympic archery team in Sydney in 2000s, which did particularly well. Just a little shout out because they were not doing particularly well before that. And then Gavin came in and they did much better than expected. So, you know, just not saying anything, but, you know. Uh, he worked with a variety of athletes from the best sporting leagues around the world, including the NBA, the WNBA, the PGA and the 2003 Rugby World Cup. And as a psychologist, insights bring an understanding of human behaviour and how to best create a high-performing culture. Our other guest is Dr John Brooks, who, in my opinion, was one of the best imports to Australia during COVID because he came over and he's just the best. Uh, 
He's worked in a number of different things as the team doctor for the English women's rugby team and medical support for the AFL Pathways, the NBL basketball, the NRL rugby league teams in Australia. Um, and he's currently working for with Richmond at the moment with the Tykes. Very nice. Count yeah. the Tykes. Yeah, just excited. <laughs> he has a PhD in sports injuries, a degree in exercise physiology and sports sciences and co-authored more than 40 peer-reviewed sports medicine publications. He has presented his work at international conferences and continues to teach sport and exercise medicine to current and future doctors and clinicians. Dr. John can also speak to our topic today, which we're talking about concussion, as he was in a former life a professional rugby player himself at the Harlequins in the Guinness Premiership and for the English Saxons, which is the national team, <laughs> mind you. So we're talking very good Second, Second team, team. Oh. still national level. Quick to mention, yeah. <laughs> and we've, we're very lucky. We're going to have a panel discussion today because both our guests have some radio background. With Gavin regularly appearing on the ABC and on Channel Seven Sunrise, and Doctor John's done some rugby commentating. So we thought we'd throw them in the deep end and just have them both on together. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Morning. 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 So. Just for our viewers out there, Gavin, why don't you just start us off? Give us a little summary about what a sports psychologist does. What it does or what I don't do. Correct. Yeah, and I think the biggest um, misnomer out there is that the psychologist is there to fix problems. So, you know, come along and fix a problem. Like athletes not performing, come and fix it. But reality, it's not that. For me, I have a very succinct way of defining what I do. And I ask the question around what's the difference between good and great? Mm. And the answer is not skill-based. Um, for me, the answer is... The difference between good and great is the ability to perform consistently under pressure. Mm. And that's what I do. So I'm looking at how athletes are performing, how they measure their performance, and then how they respond under a variety of different pressures and building up skills to enable them to deal with that. Um, so that they, when they turn up on the day, they're actually able to put the performance out there that they train for mm. um, and being able to respond to the challenges that, that face them. So many sports have got external factors that you can't train for and you can't prepare for because you don't know what the opposition is going to do. Mm. So it's about breaking those down, doing scenario planning, the what-if type scenarios, and giving athletes the confidence that they'll be able to deal with whatever gets presented to them, not just what was written on the X's and O's before the, uh, the, you know, the, at the beginning of the day from the coaches. Mm. What, what made you interested in it, Gavin? How did you get into it? I didn't get into law school. Ah, uh, <laughs> classic. <laughs> I was, you know, well, my father's an accountant, my brother's an accountant, I've got a few uncles that are lawyers, you know, so I picked the absolute perfect route and I went into psychology. Makes yeah. complete yeah, sense. Yeah, of course. It, of course well, someone's got to deal with all their baggage. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. John, tell us a little bit about sports physicians. Well, sports physicians are an interesting one because most sports physicians do a variety of roles. They don't usually just have one job. So a lot of sports physicians will work with an elite team. They'll work with governing bodies and doing sort of clinical governance stuff. But I guess the most relevant bit to the listeners is probably that we see a lot of patients in clinic. And we mm. see a lot of patients who have musculoskeletal problems. So, you know, problems with their joints, muscles, bones um, that, that are generally not surgical issues but also perhaps that they, they, they haven't been able to be in adverted commas fixed with physiotherapy and mm. physical activity and and it's sort of providing that interface between surgery and, and physical activity and physiotherapy and and providing a you know a sensible diagnosis and treatment plan and also Gavin and I were talking earlier about one of the key things I'd say is actually interpreting 
imaging findings and quite mm. often people come with with images and and reports that that sound horrendous on paper but actually it's about providing a sensible interpretation and, and, and a treatment plan and yeah something from, that something that I didn't realize that sports physicians do which I think is really lovely and important part of your role is when you work with teams you're almost like their general you know, primary physician, mm-hmm. you might be prescribing the pill to yeah. the soccer players or, you know, counselling them on getting the flu shot or whatever. You know, you're that that kind of yeah. parental figure almost in the team looking after the team and, and their general health as well as their kind of sports and performance-related health. You're right. And actually my background is, is also general practice, which is really helpful for doing teamwork. And, and a lot of teams will employ somebody with a, a GP background because, as you say, particularly when you travel with teams, a lot of the work that you're doing is is general practice um and and then yeah i guess the other element to it is is injection therapy as well Mm. which and i try and actually steer patients away from injection therapy most of the time but at at times it's appropriate and and can really help yeah so for those out there injection therapy are things like corticosteroid injections for joint issues and i can say i work with both of these gentlemen and john has been my go-to for a very long time for all my patients that i don't have the answers for you always you always said we complicated patients because yeah. <laughs> she does such a good job the ones that end up with you are really <laughs> tricky but i think lots of people there's a misunderstanding out there in the general public that physios actually are not able to prescribe any kind of medication so if we've got somebody who we think there's going to be pain or there's going to be issues in terms of discomfort for an extended period of time and we don't think over-the-counter medications appropriate for the patient we'll actually send them off to one of our sports docs to get an opinion and get you know the right kind of medication on board so that people aren't suffering or using the wrong or incorrect kind of medication for for longer-term conditions, which is really interesting. So in terms of what we're talking about today, I thought we'd have a discussion about concussion. So for those who might be aware in our general population and our listeners, concussion has been a hot topic, particularly with the AFL um, coming out with the study of this historic concussion conditions and how that's affected players. And having these lovely gentlemen in the studio today, I thought we could get a really good understanding about how concussion is seen in um, the sporting community and, and what's going on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I'm going to throw it over to you, Doctor. Tell me a little bit. What is concussion? What are the symptoms? What are we looking for? Well, Barmy, well, that's several hours in itself. But <laughs> uh, um, we got time. We got time. Okay, <laughs> you can't fail to notice that there's so much around concussion in the media at the moment, and and it's. It's an important topic because basically it's a traumatic injury to the brain. So the brain has got injured and and essentially that causes um, neurons of the brain to fire off different chemicals and therefore you end up with uh, different signs and symptoms of in inverted commas, a, a, a brain injury. But the key thing with concussion is actually it's a transient injury. So the, the signs and symptoms that you see are, are transient and you do get a recovery over a period of time, usually over several weeks. Um, one of the other key things to mention is that actually with concussion, you can't diagnose it with any sort of imaging. So you can't see anything on a scan. Scans are useful to rule out something more serious, but... But, but there's nothing so far in the imaging techniques that we've got 
that will say you've been diagnosed with a concussion and therefore it's it can be difficult to diagnose because it's 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 clinical signs and symptoms old-fashioned doctoring old-fashioned doctoring absolutely um and something else that's really important in historically people thought oh a concussion was uh, an injury where somebody had lost consciousness but but we know now that actually fewer than 10 probably fewer than five percent of concussions actually result in any loss of consciousness is that right so it's it's uh, yes it is a sign in, uh, of of concussion but but actually most concussions there's no loss of consciousness wow. and it's other more subtle things that you sort of have to look out for what, what kind uh, of things are um do people out there look for in terms of concussion so so when you're actually looking at a player and looking at somebody who might have had a head injury you're looking for any sort of wobbling or staggering you know balance sort of disturbance um you're looking for somebody who's um grabbing their head they might have had an impact to the head um but you might not see anything other than that they might have had you know a facial injury um anything that you can see that just isn't quite right they're acting a bit strangely when they get up they're very slow to get up um there are more sort of significant signs where actually if they've sustained a serious head injury there might be a brief loss of consciousness and there's some convulsions but then sometimes actually people recover really quickly so you've got to be you've got to be pretty sharp at at looking for some of this stuff the convulsions from my memory of my sports training are slightly more common in the younger population is that correct slightly more common yeah absolutely but look actually still relatively rare it's the more minor stuff that you've got to look out for in in community sport i think it's the behavior change you know a lot of people my favorite concussion i mean this sounds really bad but my favorite concussion story of my many years of sports training i had a lovely gentleman who had a knock with the ground most people think it's a knock to the head but often you can just hit your head on the ground after a tackle or something and he got up and he would not stop singing really bad songs at the top of his voice which was very much not his normal thing and we had to very much convince him that it was not a good idea to go back on the ground oh, absolutely and if you if you're working with a team that knowing your players is really important because you can you know that they just don't look right and they're just not acting right yeah and if it was me that's just me on a saturday morning yeah. singing having a bit of a laugh (laughs) and how long can these kinds of symptoms last after a concussion look that's that's very variable and they can they can be relatively transient in in terms of a few minutes few hours few days but sometimes they can last for a prolonged period of time you know several weeks and months and it's very individual and it's very difficult to pick which players will will end up with with problems longer term um i guess the, the the other thing to mention in terms of diagnosing or identifying concussion it's it's not just looking at the player it's also listening to the player Mm. and and what they report and historically collision sport players didn't want to report any symptoms because it was seen as a sign of weakness that's by and large changed there's a lot more awareness of concussion and players now are a lot more honest if you ask them particularly and and will readily admit to to to, uh, um to some of the symptoms that that we know are, are typical of concussion. That's really so. good to hear that players are sort of looking after themselves in that way or, you know, given the space to look after themselves, I suppose. You said that the um, uh, longev- the sort of duration of symptoms can vary a lot from person to person. Is the same true for the um, 
the sort of degree of impact might affect different people differently? It's like, are some people more concussion prone? Um, some people are, but it's very difficult to, again, to pick those mm. players. And, and one of our red flags, I suppose, for, for more sig- significant issues. Uh, is that if somebody is sustaining multiple concussions, but also mo- concussions that have been sustained from an impact that you wouldn't necessarily expect to like cause a relatively, a head- minor. relatively mm. minor injury. Mm. Um, but but the questions you've got to ask and, and that players should be reporting a, a headache, um, you know, memory problems, concentration problems, feeling a bit dizzy, feeling a bit nauseous, you know, brain fog, just not feeling right. And there's, there's lists of symptoms that we can ask and that there's some great tools out there for people working in community sport that who can access this stuff so you don't have to remember all these symptoms and also for parents i think if you've got kids young kids who are playing a contact sport or even any kind of sort of um sport on the weekend have it on your phone because if you've seen them you know go down or get knocked or tripped or something and they've hit their head it's a really easy way for you to sort of log their symptoms and just keep an eye on them because from experience there's lots of people who in the moment get back up because the adrenaline of the game and they feel okay and then afterwards or they've settled down from the game or or the next day they're just feeling a bit average and and it's worth keeping an eye on and what should people do if they do think they might have had a concussion or if a doctor identifies someone is likely to be experiencing concussion what's the treatment well so 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 the first thing actually is just to rule out anything more serious so again there's a list of concussions of what we call red flags so you know if somebody's becoming more drowsy is starting to lose consciousness or a prolonged period of loss of consciousness things that you might expect um to see in a more significant brain injury then that's a sort of triple zero type thing so that's the first thing to make sure that you rule out Mm. Gavin, mm-hmm. what kind of things do you deal with with concussion? So there's a couple of factors that we play out here. One is you know how athletes are responding after the fact. Mm. You know, yes, there's the the clinical the clinical symptoms, and they will dissipate over time. But then we start to explore the psychological factors. And for some for some athletes, it's a fear of going back in. They mm. don't want to get hit, so they they change their behaviour and they and they develop protective based behavior and in some sports that actually can look like they're no longer tough enough or they're no longer going in for a particular they're not putting their head down you know in in afl they're not putting their head down and doing something Mm. so it's part of that is helping those athletes understand their own fear response Mm. understand what that pressure is now for them and look at the behaviors um, that they're doing there the other aspect to it which is also quite interesting is how other athletes are responding so seeing your mate get concussed can have an impact on the team and the way the team starts to, to play. Um, and so that you're starting to have – so other athletes who may not have experienced the actual concussion can, can see that and go, I don't ever want to be like that. So, they, again, we can change some of their behaviour. So there's some of those immediate acute type responses. The other ones are just helping athletes deal with – those symptoms that John was talking about before, that fogginess, that inability to concentrate um, can become quite debilitating for athletes and they start to get concerned about that, how it might impact them outside of sport and in other areas. So there's a little bit of work done in that initial phase um, post the symptoms obviously dissipating because you can't talk to somebody while they're, while they're feeling those symptoms mm. um, to, to help them transition back in. Um, the worst, and then I guess there's a third layer, which is dealing with the parents. And, and helping parents and working with parents. I mean, I've had probably in the last two years more parents come to me in regards to wanting to get their kids out of 
these types of sports, mm. the head knock type sports, um, for fear that their kid will be there and they're wanting to know how do I have a chat and um, how do I talk to it. So there's those signs, those, those approaches. Um, the one other thing that John mentioned that are probably worthwhile just expanding a little bit more on is the understanding of your athletes. Because um, if I said to you, you know, if an athlete presents as being um, a little foggy, a little irritable, a little grumpy, a little mouthy, um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of parents out there that will go, well, that's my 15-year-old generally. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah you, you know, he's got, he's got a bit of mouth on it. So it's sometimes about helping um, them do that pre-screening. So for some of the, the, the community sports out there who don't do pre-screening, mm. there's something to be said about how you can get a sense of where these athletes are at. Um, there's a lot of young coaches out there as well that don't necessarily understand this construct to be able to bring in some experts just to give them a sense of, okay, let's, let's kind of do some baseline testing here in some way, shape or form. Um, and then, then when somebody does get a knock, you've got something to at least measure it by. You know, asking a question like who's the current prime minister – yeah, not many 15-year-olds are going to be too yeah, on top and, of that. <laughs> yeah, and so sometimes we need to sort of, you know, contextualise some of the questions and some of the things we, we ask. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw a kid on my son's team the other day who did get a head knock and the question they asked him was, uh, what year are we in? And his response was, year 10. It's <laughs> <laughs> not incorrect. Well, which wasn't incorrect. Um, and then, the, you know, the person who was doing the testing kind of looked at him a bit oddly and went, no, 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 what, like, actual year with a date? And he went, oh, yeah, it's, it's 2023. Yeah. But it was just that kind of stuff. And so, and he's a bit of a joker, this kid as well. So he was likely to <laughs> say that. A bit of smart um, maybe. Yes, a bit of yeah. smart assery was coming through. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the concern about athletes and their parents about um, – future head knocks and perhaps avoiding, you know, sustaining yeah. further injuries. In what circumstances would you – this is a question for both of you – would you counsel someone to perhaps retire from the sport, if ever? Do you want to take it's, that one first, John? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's difficult and uh, there are – I think I mentioned earlier, there's some real almost red flags w- where I wouldn't be comfortable advising contact – athletes to go back to play you know if you're sustaining multiple concussions and it's minimal trauma I'd be really worried here and and actually what in my experience what I found is that most athletes that are in that situation have probably come to the realization or it's in the back of their mind anyway because it's an unpleasant thing to have a concussion and if you're having them regularly with with minimal impact but it's about helping them make that decision it's it's actually it's actually easier, you get a better response and they're happier longer term, in my experience, if, if they've come to that realisation and you help make them make that decision. Shared decision-making. <laughs> exactly, the shared decision-making rather than just saying, no, you should never play again because yeah. then there's often pushback. Um, and there's yeah. a lot that, that you guys can add in that situation where yeah. there's... I couldn't, agree, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the athlete needs to come to the decision on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's, a, there's some really helpful aids in, in showing athletes their behaviour. So if you've got video evidence, mm. if you've got sort of um, other data sources that you can have the conversation with, um, I'd, you know, I've never, ever counselled somebody to, to retire or quit because that's just not the approach you would take. Mm. Um, but you can have the conversation around the impact that it's having with them. 
um, you can get them to reflect on their ability to make decisions and how quickly they can make it and how effective they're feeling. Um, and I think there is an element around it of, of understanding the mental toughness that's required for different sports. So there's a different form of resilience that's required for different types of sports. Mm-hmm. And when an athlete starts to demonstrate behaviours which are counterintuitive to the nature of the sport, um, it's usually a good indicator. But most of them won't be able – they can't see themselves. So you've got to remember an athlete can't see what they're doing. They can – sometimes understand how they're feeling and thinking about stuff. So being able to show it to them and demonstrate it to them, so whether it's they keep some sort of a diary over a period of time or their parents help them sort of capture some of the things that they're saying, and then video evidence is really helpful to show athletes when they've, when they've started to withdraw. Mm. Because what they then start to do is get grumpy and irritable that they're not playing as well as they used to. Mm. And so now we're adding into a whole bunch of other factors. I think particularly like if we're, we're talking about a sort of more professional athlete as well, one of the things that you often see with those multiple injuries is that the player all of a sudden, all those years and years and years of practice and that intuitive behaviour of play, it, it, they lose some of that instinct and it's sort of like they go back to this reactive style of play rather that, than the preemptive style of play that makes them so good at what they do. And, and often it takes a really long time for that sort of build-up of skill again to trust their instincts when they've had a head knock like this. We've got a fancy word for that one. Oh, share. We love a fancy word. It's called unconsciously incompetent <laughs> as opposed to consciously competent and so, um, or unconsciously competent. So what we ideally want is athletes to be unconsciously competent. Mm. That is that they're not thinking about mm. the activity that they're doing. They yeah. just do it. Yeah. Um, for what, just to put that in terms that people out there will understand, if any of you are trying to teach one of your kids to drive at the moment, they are unconsciously incompetent when they're driving. They don't even know what they're doing that's wrong. At some point in time, they become consciously incompetent. They realise that they don't know what they're doing and they're learning. But that element of unconscious incompetence means that they can just react and we're not having to think about the thought before we choose the action we're going to make. It's just instinctive and it just happens. We often see off the back of um, head knocks mm. and concussions from my lens is I'm looking for the athlete who's no longer unconsciously competent. Yeah. They're not making decisions without having to think about the decision. They're slower on their reaction time and they usually make a poorer decision given, the, given what they're seeing happening around them. And in the professional sports, it's far more, obs- uh, far more um, observable. And it's a perfectly reasonable response for them to be having. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm. Just it's you're right because when you when you're looking for concussion, sometimes you can see that on the pitch. But mm-hmm. but because we know concussion causes a drop in reaction time, a drop in skill level, and that's another selling factor to the player and to the coaches to say, well, look, aside from the safety aspect, we need to get them off because they're probably not going to perform well. But but the flip side of that is is also that we see players who who have been concussed and who who are quite symptomatic, who actually are still able to perform really well in the moment. Mm. So just because a player has sustained a, a reasonable head knock and you're not quite sure and then they suddenly get up and they, they kick a goal or they do something amazing does not mean that they are not concussed. Mm. You still have to have that sort of high index of suspicion. And just because they tell you they're not concussed also yep. doesn't mean that they're not concussed. Mm. Yep. That's the biggest thing with young kids is they'll say, to you, no, no, I'm yep. fine, I'm fine because so, I want to go back out and play. Yep. Yep. So now that we've figured out how to sort of understand what it looks like a concussion. How do you treat it? What do you do? John? (laughs) Well, look, there's the 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 in-the-moment bit in that I said about 
making sure that you're not missing anything more serious the recommendation is certainly at the community level that if you've got a suspected concussion that you see you see a medical professional and get it diagnosed so that you can get some proper guidance on how to treat it um the the biggest thing is actually is actually time but essentially the first the first thing to treat the concussion is rest and recovery mm. and that's a brief period of 24 to 48 hours of of relative rest now in many years ago with people who were concussed we used to almost sit them in a dark room for two weeks until they didn't have any symptoms and we now know that actually that's that's not the best way of helping to recover from concussion 24 24 to 48 hours not doing a, a great deal and nothing to provoke symptoms but then actually the, the first bit of the recovery is to gradually get back into everyday activities work and school mm. um, the the one thing from mine from a recovery perspective obviously psychologically there's not a whole lot we can we can do but what we do need to recognise is that, um, and I say this with all due respect to to our young to young athletes out there, is that they're not always as honest as they need to be mm. when they when they come back with their symptoms. So we've got to make sure that they're feeling like it's okay to share their symptoms. Yep. But then, secondly, and this only happened just a couple of weeks ago, so I'll share this as, a, as an insight. A young athlete um, got a head knock on the Saturday, on the Sunday, whatever it was, um, diagnosed with concussion. So concussion, concussion protocols have come in. So the sports have put in protocols. So this kid will no longer he's not going to play the following week but he went to school didn't tell his teacher played in the football game on the tuesday and got another head knock so there's there's something about the way particularly with younger kids and how parents need to be really on top and controlling it and i don't know how we do it but something around how we need to share information around and look there's no way to get around that one because this kid clearly just didn't want to do it but the problem now for this young man young man is he's out now for the next three to four weeks because the second knock would really really took him out yeah absolutely and it's and the first bit of that recovery bit is is obviously the honesty with the symptoms but getting back into school life without symptoms before you even think about sport you know sport at the the community level is is further down the line i think Uh, the thing that people forget is they they focus on the impact to their sporting career but concussion has such a broad reaching impact on an everyday life you know you're you're looking at your capacity to make decisions learning particularly for younger athletes you know they're not going to be getting the most out of their schooling environment if they've got tests if they've got exams if they've got important milestones in their mm-hmm. educational career that's going to be implicated like impacted because they they're not functioning at their best and and particularly with um things like the the long-term consequences of concussion which we're going to talk about in a second what that looks like you know five ten years down the track if you're having these like big long-term multiple concussions which is again what we're seeing in the media now is the ramifications that's exactly what i was going to ask mm. and yeah perry neem's just pointing at me because i had my hand up and i was going to ask what's the what's the long-term consequence of of this stuff oh, that that's you know that's a very difficult one still to answer mm. I, I think there's more and more evidence coming out that actually concussions and multiple concussions it is likely to increase the risk of of longer term issues um you know cognitive issues mental health issues but but it's still that the research is still not conclusive mm. and what a lot of the research so far doesn't often incorporate is other lifestyle factors that might be contributing mm. to, to some of these longer term mental mental health and you know cognitive issues whether you've had whether you've been a heavy drinker or you know there's been head knocks from other things aside from sport um, but but essentially we we need to 
we know that lots of head knocks and concussions is probably not good for the brain, either in the short term or longer term. So we've got to try and do everything to prevent it. And then if we have sustained a concussion, identify it and manage it correctly to try and reduce that risk. I guess to add to that, probably the other factor that we need to take into account is once you've gone past that acute phase, you have the two to three weeks and you're technically no longer concussed and you're now on your own dealing with things, as we see, and some of the feedback I'm picking up, and it's the same sort of scenario, we don't know exactly, but people will naturally Mm self-medicate later on in life when they're having struggles. So they don't tend to keep coming back to see the doc or the psychologist or anybody else. So they, they get left with some symptoms and they don't know how to manage them and then they self-medicate. And unfortunately, a lot of the self-medication looks like alcohol, mm. looks like you no know, non-prescription drugs um, and a variety of other sort of factors that might impact their lives. And for me, the one biggest one that, that we often find there is just that sense of self-doubt that comes in. As soon as people start to feel like they're not themselves... And then a little bit of self-doubt kicking in. We start to see other factors that then start to play. And it's so hard to manage what it is, but we know it's there. I think one of the things that's really important for people to, when we're talking about long-term impacts of concussion, a lot of the literature talks about correlates and and the Mm. correlation of things. Now, understanding that that isn't a cause and effect directly, but there is strong evidence linking things. So, you know, I was having a discussion with someone the other day because there was a paper that came out that said one of the strongest correlations with multiple concussions, particularly in um, combat sport, is domestic violence later in life. And it's not a cause and effect and it's not a you get this, you get that. It's these things we can see that there's an increase here and there's an increase in the other thing, but we don't know what the link is. And so understanding that language in research. Um, and the other thing is is absolute risk and absolute numbers, which, again, we still don't know. Just because there is a, a doubling in the risk of something does not mean that actually the absolute number of people that are going to end up with a condition is actually that much higher because mm. these conditions are still relatively rare um, and there are lots of people with um, cognitive pr- problems and dementia who've never played any contact sport, in fact, most people. But, but And also what level, even if there's a decline in cognitive function that you could possibly attribute to, to sport at some point in the future with research, mm. it does, is it a meaningful decline in cognitive function for their day-to-day life when they're 70 80 90 and it's a really it's a really really difficult difficult discussion to have and, <laughs> and there's we a, don't know and we don't we don't have all the evidence there's a really good argument as well that we know that we do know that sport and and participating in sport increases your cognition exactly. it also increases mood it improves your mental health exactly. in a whole bunch of other ways so it's that balance of okay where do we sort of draw that line in terms of the benefits now and how much it's giving you and, and boosting those kinds of things. It is going to be interesting. I know we've only got a bit of time left, but it's going to be interesting to see how the various codes are starting to adapt their rules mm. over the next couple of years. We're starting to see changes in rules to to prevent. We've got protocols for head knocks, but we're also starting to see rule changes for for some of the more combat type sports. Mm. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And you often then get the commentators, the coaches, and the like, you know, talking about you know the truists of you ruining the sport. But we're starting to see that. And I wonder what we're going to also see in regards to the way parental input's going to come on board with young kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, the young kids that, you know, the, the parents who might push their kids towards, you know, the rugby's and the, the AFL footies might start be pushing their kids toward the volleyball and soccer 
well, not so much soccer because you head knock as well. Yeah. You know, the soccers and the basketballs and croquet. But, but um, you think about, you know, like you look at someone like Will Polkowski who's had so many head knocks and he's in cricket. It's a not contact sport. Yeah. It can happen in anything. Yeah. It's about being awareness of your management. And, and uh, less than 25% of concussions in, in children, in young children, are in contact sports. Yeah. It's, in, it's all in other activities, you know, falling off monkey bars and skateboarding and, uh, you know, mates throwing a rock and it's hit them yeah. in the head. You know, are you going to... You know, I used to walk into doors a lot. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. special <laughs> skill. <laughs> but, and you're so right. And that, But the problem is because we're seeing it in sport at the moment, you're getting this reaction from parents saying, okay, it's the sporting element so I think it's a really good good insight there around that actually you can get a head knock anyway yeah. um, and it's being you know watching for it and and giving them all the support that they can they, they need certainly part of being a child in particular is about taking risks and being physically adventurous and exploring the world and you know that comes with risk um, I wanted to ask in you know in similar line of thinking where what do you think the role of spectators is in – obviously spectators watch sport because it's thrilling and part of that thrill is that there's this high contact, high energy, high risk kind of scenario playing out in front of them. At what point do you think the public will start to take issue if, say, in future – we do have stronger evidence that repeated head knocks cause significant problems for people down the track. At what point do you think spectators have have a part to play in, you know, actually we're not okay with this or, or you know, is there a, a, a piece of the puzzle in the public being complicit in that? I'm being devil's advocate here. Mm. I'd like to say no. I'd like to say that most professional sports um, kind of ignore the public and, and athletes. For the most part, athletes ignore it. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've had some really interesting debates over the booing issue mm. and what booing means. Um, and so, I, you know, while you were talking that out, I was playing it out in my head, you know, when an athlete doesn't go for a tackle, do you then, does the, the crowd then boo the athlete who didn't tackle as hard as they would have wanted them to have tackled? Mm. So that's how I was sort of mm. compartmentalising that. But for the most part, we actually train athletes to ignore the, the spectators. Um, your argument could be really interesting from a financial perspective, so people stop going to the games or stop watching it on TV. I'm wondering in particular with sports like boxing where, yeah. you know, perhaps the, the head trauma is, is more extreme and direct and, and a really integral part of the sport. At what point do we as a society, as a society say, yeah. this isn't actually entertainment? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no, it's, it's difficult. But, but the, the, it, there's got to be... The, the players who are involved in the sport have got to know that there's some risk involved here with the risk of having a head injury and repeated head injuries causing pro- problems further down the line. And they've got to be accepting of those risks. Yeah, our, our athletes really need to be educated and be making those decisions. The issue being at the moment that we actually don't have the rigorous evidence we need mm. to say no, this is exactly. the risk. Yeah. yeah, we don't know the absolute risk. I mean, we know that there is risk with repeated head injuries and longer-term issues, but we don't know what exactly what that risk yeah, is how and, how, and, and how everything ages. and yeah. how all the other factors that we talked about, the alcohol mm. and everything else, interplays mm. into that risk. We don't, we don't know that yet. Do you think we'll ever will know that? <laughs> That's a very good question, actually. Um, I think we will get there. There will be, there will be studies, but it will take some time. Um, it's hard to isolate, isn't it? Really well, that's the problem. And yeah. particularly when you're doing psychological studies, mm-hmm. it's very hard to determine what the variables are that are impacting on the individual because we can't 
we can't evaluate the brain, we can't evaluate the mind. We can see things in MRIs and the like, but we can't actually, no one's been able to image the mind. If anyone can help me out with that, that'd be awesome, by the way. Mm. <laughs> they did have that, you know, there was a few studies a few years ago looking at functional MRIs and, and the impact of concussion. So they do a functional MRI pre-season and then yeah. they'd do one if they had a head knock or things like that. But I don't think they showed anything conclusive, which is such a shame. But I think that, look, the bottom line is at the moment we've just got to treat concussions very cautiously and if there's any suspicion you you sit them you sit the player out you know you make sure they're not carrying on playing that day you get them to see a medical professional get diagnosed and get the get it get it treated and managed properly in a slow return to sport as per guidelines and i'd add one small sort of addition to that which is the reaction of the coaches Mm. So what we really want to make sure is that when an athlete is ruled out, so if they have a head knock on the game and they sit down, we don't want the coaches demonstrating any behaviour of oh, crying out loud. This, mm-hmm. you know, we need those. We need the coaches to be pure, one hundred percent supportive mm-hmm. of the trainer, whoever's making the decision that that athlete is out. It's got to be a an all in well being. Everybody be paramount, every, right? Because yep. I've seen too many coaches over my years roll their eyes and go, oh. Yeah, the doc says you're out, so okay, you have to sit out. Yeah. And that in and of itself creates a significant amount of pressure on the athlete yeah. to need to come back because they want to please their coaches. Yeah. That's, uh, and that's such an important point that you mentioned. And, and what I would say, though, in my experience is in the last couple of years, there's been a, a sea change oh, in, in most coaches' yeah. understanding of concussion and acceptance At the senior level, yeah. I yeah. think where we still need to bring some community. stuff down is at the community Agreed. level. And particularly, it's not about bad coaching. It's about often we having young coaches mm. who just don't. You know, we've got the 17-, 18-year-olds now who are coaching the 13-year-olds. It's that yeah. Uh, that and I, I would argue the same thing in terms of your – you've got trainers. They've impl- implemented that at, at a community level a lot. But often for the really junior squads, you've got quite young trainers and for them to actually make the call mm-hmm. and say, hey, this person needs to sit out. If they're, you know, 15, 16, 17 and they're making a dis- like an older coach or a parent who might be coaching a young team yeah. and the parent's going, no, nah, I want them to play – that's very confronting and they're going to start to question their judgment and and it's kind of on the onus of of the coach to make sure that that's such an inclusive environment and also parents spectator parents in young community sport it's not about putting pressure on your athletes like the whole point is not for them to be you know performing at some high level yeah a a lot of this is about coach education and certain sports particularly rugby union in in the uk now have compulsory coach education modules if you're Mm. coaching a team you have to do a concussion module you have to do this annually and understand what concussion is so that it can be managed correctly and that you're not going to be challenging the, the the um, the physio or whoever's made that call. I'm going to put a little plug in here because Dr. John also does a concussion night at uh, one of the practices he works at, which is Physio Sports Brighton. When and everyone they... goes and gets a concussion, that sounds no. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but they do education and I think it's really great for parents particularly to come on and listen to sports docs about what they're looking for and, and how to care for their kids with those kinds of things and what they're looking for in concussion. And the AFL do some great stuff they as do well in too. terms of education. We're going to have to wrap it up, folks. We are. So a big thank you to Gavin and, and Dr John who've come on and talked to us about such a hot topic at the moment. It's been a really interesting discussion and we've really enjoyed having you on for the day. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and, and it's thank you for listening. Remember you can listen to us on the podcast, on On Demand. We've got Facebook, Instagram, all of the social medias. You can find us there. 
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.